keep Ephesians 2 open in front of you. That's where we're going to be for the next half an hour or so. And uh, if you turn to the next page of your outline, you'll see a question at the top there. Uh, the question is, uh, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Now, that is normally a question asked with a certain tone of voice, isn't it? Who do you think you are? And the last time I was, I was asked that question with that tone of voice uh, was by my daughter. <laughs> she's just started secondary school. She's got a mobile phone now. And um, it like, hadn't been a great day. We hadn't been getting on the best. And I said to her, I'd like to see your mobile phone, please. Which, um, I'm allowed to do. And in a, in a, a sort of uppity moment, she turned to me and just went, who do you think you are? <laughs> and I said... I'm your dad. And she said, I'm so sorry, Dad. I, please forgive me. That was a terrible thing to say. Have my mobile phone. I love you. Look, whatever you want. She gave me a big hug. It's not quite what she said. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what she did say or how it went from there. But you may have been asked that question. Who do you think you are? And you, you get the premise behind the question, don't you? The, the, the premise behind the question is that your sense of self, your sense of identity will drive your behaviour. Who do you think you are that made you think you could say that thing or do that thing? And a culture, a culture is the, the cumulative effect of lots of individual identities. Or you could say a, a culture is a corporate identity, a corporate sense of self, a corporate sense of who we are, that will then flow out into all kinds of different behaviours. And so as Paul gets into the meat of the letter that he writes to the Ephesians, what he does is, in a sense, begin to answer his own prayer from chapter 1, verse 18. He prays that, that God would open the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesians, that they would know the hope to which they've been called, that they would know the inheritance that God has in store for them, and that they would know the full extent of the power that he has worked in them. And what you get in Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10 is an explanation of the full extent of the power that God has worked in the Ephesians. In a way that becomes totally determinative, he hopes, for their sense of self. So that's what's going on in these verses that Ethan just read for us. Paul is helping the Ephesians understand who they truly are in the Lord Jesus Christ. But to help them understand who they truly are, who the Christian truly is today, the first thing he has to do is go back and help them understand who they truly were. It's the first heading if you're following along on the outlines there. Who we were. And that's what you get in verses 1 to 3. So I'm just going to reread verses 1 to 3. And let me encourage you to, to brace yourself as I do that. Because uh, reading verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians chapter 2 is a bit like looking at a crime scene. Okay? Or doing an autopsy. You know, in crime dramas, when you go to the morgue and they do the autopsies, they, they sort of um, cast their eyes over a dead body. Okay? That's what Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3 is. So Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, 
gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. Paul lays it on with a trowel in these verses. It's like, a, like waves hitting the shore. It just keeps coming at us. He says, first of all, uh, you were dead. This is his diagnosis of the spiritual state of the person apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, outside the study that I work in at home, it looks out onto a roof and there are pigeons that, that walk around on the roof cooing during the day. It's, if, I, if I want to be distracted, I just enjoy watching the pigeons. But one morning a few weeks ago, I came out into our back garden. There on the patio was a, a dead pigeon just lying there. I don't know if you ever encountered a dead animal. At first, I wasn't quite sure. I just wanted to be 100% sure. So I got, the, got a broom out and just, just poked it a couple of times. Because he didn't know it would kind of come back to life and, and flutter and fly off into the distance. But it didn't. It just, well, it did nothing. It was just lying there on the floor dead. And so I had to, um, I was going to say dispose of the corpse. That makes it sound like I murdered this pigeon. I just had to get rid of this dead pigeon. And I was like, because I knew as I looked at it, there was nothing I could do for it. I couldn't do CPR on the pigeon. I couldn't. You know, put some breadcrumbs in front of it and coax it back to life. No electrodes to kind of, you know, bring it. Nothing was going to work for this pigeon. It was dead. Helpless. Without hope. And that's what Paul is saying about us before the Lord Jesus Christ intervened by his grace. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But then he gives us a different perspective on ourselves apart from Jesus Christ. He says, you're dead in your sins and transgressions in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So we were actually, whilst dead, at the same time, active participants. Active participants in the way that the world was, was going. Sometimes you find that tendency still at work in your heart. You see the way the world is going, you see the way people are, and you're just drawn towards it. It's very natural as humans to be drawn towards the ways that everybody is following in. In a sense, you might say we were like the dead fish in the river, just flowing in the same direction as the rest of the world. Uh, it gets a bit sharper as he goes on. You were following the ways of this world, and then he goes on, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. If you're wondering who he's talking about there, he's talking about the devil. That's the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit now at work in those who are disobedient. He says, you followed the ways of the world. He says, you followed the devil. By which he's not saying everyone who's not a Christian is a Satanist, you know, caught up in the ways of the occult, doing satanic practices and that kind of thing. He's saying something much more simple and ordinary. He's saying, you believed his lies. We'll think about this more in, in the fourth talk. But in Genesis chapter 3, that's what uh, is described as happening with Adam and Eve, isn't it? The devil comes in, he sows his lies, and they, instead of believing the truth that God has spoken to them, believe the lies that the devil speaks, and they just follow him. Paul says that's the, the fate of the rest of humanity. They just follow the lies of the devil and follow in his ways. You were dead, he says, you followed the world, you followed the devil, but in case we think we were passive in this, he then says, uh, you were following your own sinful passions and desires. That's verse three. All of us, he says, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. We were active participants in this process. He says, our hearts 
naturally were producing what he calls, uh, what, what does he call them there? Um, uh, cravings, the cravings of our sinful nature, desires and thoughts, wants that were flowing out of our hearts. And, and they, they reared up and we just followed them. And yes, the world was enticing us. Yes, the devil was deceiving us. But we decided we wanted it and we went in that direction so that he delivers the devastating verdict of the end of verse three. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, wrath, the righteous anger of God against our sinful rejection of him. It's a pretty devastating description of who we were. And my my guess is you don't normally think of yourselves in that way apart from the grace of God and I guess that because I don't normally think of myself in that way apart from the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and I know for a fact our culture would never encourage us to think in this way I'm aware actually what we've just read there more and more is politically incredibly incorrect isn't it we live in a you know the kind of self-help self-esteem culture that says we need to tell each other all the time how good we are, how worthy we are, how deserving of love we are. So that verses like 1 to 3 of Ephesians chapter 2 are deeply politically incorrect. And indeed, we might even be told these days that we are, uh, are, are dangerous people for, for telling each other these truths about what we're like by nature. But Paul, like I say, he, he, he lays it on with a trowel, doesn't he? You know, he doesn't hold back here. There's not sort of one brief phrase at the beginning of Ephesians 2, then he moves on. He works it through in depth, looking at it like an autopsy from all kinds of different angles. And the reason he does that is because this is a key building block in establishing a gospel culture. If we want to know the full extent of the power of God's at work in our lives, we've got to see how far back we were at the start. If we want to understand the full depths of the grace of God, we need to see how far and how deep we had sunk. And as we do that, that will produce in us, I think, a humility. Paul talks actively about humility in the book of Ephesians. In fact, we'll get to it when we get to chapter four a little later today. Humility is a hallmark of a gospel culture. And very countercultural in our world today. Because normally, I think when we step into uh, any institution you know, or any, any corporate group that we're getting to know or getting to be part of, our normal first thought is what do I bring to this group? What do I bring? Maybe when you first arrived at St. John's Downshire Hill, you thought to yourself, what am I going to bring to this church? And our normal thought when we think that is to think about the uh, maybe the skills that we have, maybe the professional skills that we've got or the, just the, the gifts that we've got, the things that we're good at uh, or our temperament or our personality or our ethnicity or our socioeconomic status, our giftedness, all of these different things we think about ourselves. That's what I bring to the party. And the result of that can be that we end up uh, categorising ourselves. Uh, we can end up establishing sort of hierarchies in the life of the institutions we're part of. We know what we bring uh, and we know where we fit. Uh, we, we, we know who's up there and we know who's down there and we know where to place ourselves in the social hierarchy because of what we bring. Or we, we kind of, that there are circles of inclusion, there are inner rings and there are outer rings on the basis of, of who you are and what you do. 
There's the in crowd and there's the out crowds. There are the cliques that we belong to, all on the basis of who we are and what we bring to the party. And the result of that mindset and that way of doing things, then I think in its worst moments is a kind of judgmentalism. Because I know what I bring and I know what you don't bring. And therefore I look down on you for that. And in today's culture, which is very, very judgmental, if that's left unchecked, that works its way out into kind of cancel culture and that kind of thing, where if you don't fit or you don't believe the right things or bring the right things, you're on the outside whilst I'm on the inside. All because we're defined by what we bring, who we think we are. But if you ask yourself the question, what do we bring to the family of God? What was it that got us in through the front door of the kingdom of God's and into the church? The answer that Paul gives is nothing. In fact, according to verses 1 to 3, kind of worse than nothing. We had nothing to bring to God's. Nothing that won his favour. No skill set that made him go, oh you, I want you in my kingdom. No personality that made him go, you're so lovable, we've got to have you on the inside of things. And when we understand that, when we grasp who we were by nature, that in turn produces a humility in me. And indeed produces a, a level playing field between us. Because I know there's nothing I brought that got me into the kingdom of God. And I also know there's nothing that you brought that got you into the kingdom of God. And when we have that kind of level playing field, that collective humility, well, what that should begin to produce in us and between us is a, a kind of openness all of a sudden. I don't have to pretend to you that I'm something that I'm not by nature. I don't need to put on the good front because I know by nature what I'm truly like. And I know by nature what you're truly like. And indeed it produces a kind of a, a patience with each other. We know we still have the sinful nature that means we're going to get things wrong. We don't have to be quick to judge each other and push each other out when we get things wrong. Indeed this should produce a kind of a charity among us that's willing to uh, accept each other despite our failings and despite what we get wrong. Who we were. That's where Paul starts. But wonderfully, it's not where he stops. Because Paul also goes on, goes on to talk then about who we are. Now, there's who we were and there's who we are. Um, a couple of months ago, I watched, I don't know if you saw it, uh, the, the documentary on, on the BBC about Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. Blair and Brown, I can't remember what it's called now, about New Labour, basically. Uh, it's fascinating. I think it might still be on iPlayer. Go and watch it. It's really interesting. It's, it's all about kind of the early years of my adult life. So it's very evocative and, and just fun to watch. And it's the story of, uh, of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and their kind of partnership slash rivalry. And it's very obvious, early on, Tony Blair rises to prominence. He leads New Labour to, to uh, election victory and general kind of um, you know, prosperity as a party, with Gordon Brown as this kind of political powerhouse behind the throne. But as the documentary goes on and the story goes on, it becomes increasingly obvious that Gordon Brown longs to be prime minister and is running out of patience. And uh, as the, in the later parts of the documentary, you get some of the senior advisors and aides talking about how 
that there was a moment when Gordon Brown stormed into Tony Blair's office and was kind of thumping on his desk saying, when are you going to stand down from being prime minister? When are you going to let me be prime minister? Uh, and then you hear these aides talking about it and then it cuts to Gordon Brown and he's there going, oh, all, all I ever wanted to do was just to serve the people. That's all I ever wanted. <laughs> and you're thinking, I'm pretty sure, Gordon, that's not all you ever wanted to do. You wanted to be prime minister. And, and you sort of laugh at it and think, oh, yeah, there you go. That's what he's like. But actually, do you know, we should have some sympathy for Gordon Brown because really what he wants is what we all want. Not to be prime minister, but to be respected. To be able to sit in the place of privilege, uh, to be in the highest place, to be cherished by those around us, recognised by our peers, respected for who we are. Starts at the earliest of moments in our life, doesn't it? We want to be able to sit next to the birthday boy or the birthday girl at their birthday party, don't we? The birthday party to the boardroom. We want to be able to sit in the seat of power. We want to be junior management. We want to be senior management. We love one day to be the CEO. It's just human nature. Well, have a look at verses 5 and 6 to see where we are as Christians. Starting verse 4. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. He describes there at least two amazing and related realities that, again, if we grasp them, should radically transform our, our sense of ourself our identity he talks about both who we are and where we are who we are well he says you are in Jesus Christ now you see you get it in verse 6 uh, he has at the end of the verse there seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus and then you get it again in verse 7 uh, uh, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus and then you get it again in verse 10 we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. It's the kind of fundamental theological reality that underpins all of these verses, actually, that you and I are in Christ Jesus. That's who we are now. It's this incredible spiritual reality that underpins so much of what Paul says in the New Testament. It is his kind of, his baseline way of describing the Christian person. You are in Christ Jesus. Uh, when you become a Christian, the spirit of Jesus Christ comes into your heart and unites you inseparably to him. So that now you can say Jesus Christ dwells in you and you are in Christ Jesus. So that everything that is true of Jesus Christ profoundly becomes true of you. His death becomes your death. His resurrection life begins for you today and will be completed in the future. And Paul says, amazingly, his ascension to the highest place of the universe at the right hand of God is now where you are because you are in Christ Jesus. Which should change, I think, therefore, the stories that we tell about ourselves. I've done it this weekend. You've done it this, this weekend. When you meet someone for the first time, you tell your, your story, don't you? Uh, you might do it in a sort of piecemeal kind of way, but we tell a story about ourselves. This is who I am. This is... 
uh, where I was born, this is where I grew up, this is who my parents are, this is where I went to school, these are the influences on me, this is the job that I now have today, this is the future that I'm working towards. These are the stories that we tell about ourselves. If you ask God, uh, what's the story of Jamie Childs? I wonder if he might not say, oh, Jamie, yeah, he was dead. <laughs> he was dead, but by grace, I made him alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, do you know, Jamie sits at the right hand, at my right hand, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the story that Jamie should tell about himself. That's who we are, you see. We're in the Lord Jesus Christ, which means now we know where we are. That is to say, we are seated in the heavenly places. Verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This, this longing that we have in our hearts to be seated in the place of privilege. Well, it is fulfilled profoundly and spiritually even today. So yes, we look around the room now and we're seated where we're De Denham, west of London, in the home counties. That's where we're seated today. Paul would say yes and no. <laughs> yes, you are physically, spiritually today, you are seated at the right hand of God in heaven. The most privileged place in the universe. That's where you are because of who you are. This is our prodigal son moment. You know the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells about the, the boy who, who walks away from his father's house, makes himself a spiritual orphan and blows the inheritance and decides to come crawling back to his father, groveling to him, asking if perhaps he might just be a servant in his home. And as he grovels his way back, crawls his way back up the drive, he finds his father running down the drive to him with his arms open, ready to embrace him and welcome him back in and give him again the place of privilege in the home with the inheritance still coming to him. That's true for us in the Lord Jesus Christ's in a way that should powerfully define our sense of self. This is who we are today as God sees us. When he looks at you today, he sees Jesus Christ in all of his perfection and with all of his glory. And it should define, therefore, not just our sense of self, but our sense of each other as well. Because Paul is saying here, by implication, I think, that, that we're royalty. If you're seated at the right hand of God, on the throne of heaven, it's because you're royalty. Jesus Christ is the king of heaven, and now we're seated in him. We're, we're royalty. Like, imagine for a moment that Prince William walked in the door. Right now, the door opened, and there was Prince William with Kate and the kids. There would be a sort of audible gasp, wouldn't they? Wouldn't there? And, 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 and all, we'd, we'd sort of all stand up slowly but surely, wouldn't we? Because, because royalty just walked in the room. And I imagine Tom would start getting a bit flustered, something, what on earth are we going to? The royals have just arrived. S uh, sit down, come and sit in the front row. Let's make sure we've got the best seats for them. He'd slip up and have a quiet word at reception to make sure the food at lunch was going to be the best possible food they could serve. Have they got a royal suite here? Because we need to clear it out and make it available for the royalty that's just arrived. Paul is saying here, we are, spiritually speaking, royalty. And so that same attitude of kind of care 
that we might have if Prince William walked in the room is the same attitude of care that we should have for each other. As we understand who we are collectively by faith, by grace, well, a culture of care is what should work out in how we treat each other and go towards each other. Not, that, not with that sort of inferior sense of deference that we might have if Prince William walked in the room, but with a sense of mutual affection because we're all royalty, spiritually speaking. This is who we are now. So Paul talks about who we were. He talks about who we are now. And through it all, he talks about how we are who we are, crucially. How we are who we are. You see, how is it that it happens? How did I go from the, the, the gutter to the throne room of God, from, from death to life, spiritually speaking? How did I get seated in the heavenly realms with the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the answer Paul gives is by grace. Very simply, by grace. By God's unmerited favour towards us. Uh, it's there in verse 5. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then, as though he might have been worried that some of the, uh, the readers might have dozed off at that point, you get, again, in verse 8, almost exactly the same thing said. For it is by grace you have been saved. He really doesn't want them to miss the point. It's kind of there implicitly in verse 4, isn't it, as well? Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that he has done. You heard that, uh, that maxim that sometimes the Christianity Explored course uses. I am more flawed and sinful than I ever dared believe. I am more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. That gets to the heart of the message of Ephesians chapter 2. We bring nothing to the table and nonetheless God gives us everything. That is how we are who we are. Very simply by grace. And again, when we, when we grasp this, when we really get it, it is transformative for the way that we live our lives. I sometimes use this as an illustration. When I'm talking to uh, people who aren't Christians, uh, you, you, I'm sure you will have had someone say to you once, um, not a Christian, you're trying to explain the gospel to them, and they say to you, doesn't this mean that I can just do whatever I want to do? Right? If, if I'm forgiven by grace, not because of anything I've done. Can't I just go out and live whatever life I want to live? And so sometimes I say, look, imagine a, a scenario where, you know, I turn 18, it's my 18th birthday, and my mum and dad buy me a brand new car for my 18th birthday, right? That didn't happen, but imagine that it did. And I, and I that night, I call my mates up, they pile in the back of the car, and, and we go razzing around Birmingham where I live. And... Um, and at the end of the night, I'm driving carelessly, I'm driving too fast, and I wrap the car around a lamppost. Now, that did actually happen, but that's a story for another time. I crash the car, and I go home to my parents on the night of the 18th birthday. The car is being towed behind me. I, I ring the doorbell, they open it, I show them the car, I say, I'm so sorry, I've been an idiot. And they say, look, just go to bed, go to bed. We'll talk about it in the morning. And then that morning, I wake up, there's a knock at my door. And the door, I say, come in, and my mum and dad come in, and they say to me, Jamie, you were an idiot for crashing the car, but we love you, we forgive you, and your dad went out this morning, and he's bought you another car. 
Now imagine that moment, and then I walk out, and there in the drive is a brand new car. And they give me the keys, and they say, there you go, take it for a drive. How am I going to drive that car? I'm not going to take it out and razz it around Birmingham and wrap it around a lamppost. I'm going to drive carefully, respectfully, in the light of the incredible grace that has been shown to me. Paul is saying that we have taken our lives, spiritually speaking, by nature and wrapped them around the lamppost, made a mess of them. And nonetheless, God has knocked on our door and said, I want to buy you a new car. I want to give you a brand new life in Jesus Christ. Not because of anything you've done, but very simply by grace. And when we grasp that, it is totally transformative for the life that we then want to lead. That produces a culture of humility and of thankfulness. And it blows away all of the normal attitudes that are the result of self-righteousness. For example, the, the culture of uh, entitlement that is prevalent in our world today. You and I live in a very entitled culture, I think it's fair to say. We have high expectations of service levels that we're supposed to receive. Uh, we have high expectations of the, the care that we're supposed to receive in our society. We expect to have our voices heard, you know, whether you're at secondary school or in your business or in society generally. We're supposed to have our voices heard, aren't we? There is a certain lifestyle that we expect to live. We have rights and we know them. And if that culture makes its way into the church, that is toxic for the life of the church. Because that culture is all about, it's all about me. And it's all about my demands and my expectations of everybody else. And is a powerful recipe, therefore, for, say, disappointments and division. I expect things of everybody else, whether it's Tom or the other members of the staff, and if I don't get them, I'm disappointed, and I'll divide and head off in another direction. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 says we're not really entitled to anything, spiritually speaking. And Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 8 says God has given me everything, spiritually speaking. And like I say, when together we feed on that reality, when, when Tom and others preach that reality to you week by week, Sunday by Sunday, when that is talked about, meditated on, when God is blessed for that reality, it's totally transformative for the culture of that church. The preaching of the grace of God is transformative. It's like... Um, it's like bacteria in yoghurt. I'm immediately out of my depth in this illustration. <laughs> but I, is this the way yoghurt gets made? Uh, you have milk and then you... <laughs> David really doesn't have a clue either. You introduce something to it, don't you? And, and, and it works its way through the whole. Like it, it produces a culture. I think that's sometimes the word that's used. And it turns the milk into yoghurt, maybe. You know what I mean. You get the point. Grace is like that. When it's preached from the pulpit... And grasped by the people is totally transformative for the culture. It turns that subculture into something totally different and something wonderful. It takes a subculture that could be grumbling and fills it with gratitude. It makes a subculture that is all about service rather than self-entitlement. 
It brings about a culture that is marked by a commitment to each other rather than comparison with each other. It will be a culture that is all about self-emptying rather than self-entitlements. It will produce joy in each other rather than judgmentalism over each other. The point Paul is making in these verses is this. It's a simple one. It is that the gospel is not just something that we have. It's something that we are. The gospel is not just something that we have. It's something that we are. And everything else that we do in the life of our church will be the outflow of that reality. And so as we close, let me give you two more lines of application that I think Paul gives us actually in these verses, just as we think through what difference this is going to make. First of all, there is what we don't do. What we don't do. That's verse 9. Well, let me read from verse 8. He says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So that no one can boast. I hope after looking at these verses that's kind of obvious isn't it the person who brags the person who boasts has completely missed the point about who we were and who we are and how we are who we are if you get that you don't boast and most of the time I think we we get that and and, and it kind of restrains us and, and British culture as well is not big on boasting is it we don't like people who boast at least not in that kind of really out there ostentatious kind of way there's a there's a stand-up comedian called Brian Regan just type into YouTube me monster Brian Regan he does this great sequence about the me monster the person who at the dinner party just wants to talk about me all of the time British culture tends to frown on that so we don't kind of fall into that way of boasting but nonetheless sometimes we do like to boast we're just more subtle and more expert about it you heard of the uh, the humble brag come across the humble brag it has a dictionary definition now the dictionary de definition is, is this an ostensibly modest or self-deprecating statement whose actual purpose is to draw attention to something of which one is proud. It's a very British way of boasting. I have a friend who used to joke, he said, uh, oh, have you read my book, Humility and How I Achieved It? <laughs> that's, that's the way we tend to brag. The humble brag, or perhaps the hardship brag, where I tell you all the time about how hard my life is. Now, don't hear me wrong, a gospel culture is a culture where there is a real openness about what's hard in your life. But the hardship brag is not designed to disclose what's going on in a way that expresses need and is asking for help. The hardship brag is designed to make me look good and you feel bad. There are all kinds of subtle ways that we can boast. And Paul says very simply, there's no place for that in a grace culture. It's contrary to the gospel of grace that recognises I deserve nothing, but I've got everything. We don't boast, but finally, we do do good works. That's verse 10. Because of all of this, verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
there is a common misconception, an easy lie that makes its way into the church, which is that because we're saved by grace, we should never exhort each other to do things. Uh, that's legalism, we think. I, I feel this particularly, key, I can say this because I'm away from my church, I feel this when I, I say to people things like, um, do make Sunday church the highest priority in your week. Do make it a normal thing to be at church on a Sunday. Do make it so that nothing pushes church out except emergencies or the times you've really, really got to be away. I sort of feel as I say things like that to people, that the, the behind the scenes they're thinking to themselves, this is legalism, bringing a culture of legalism. Or at our church, sometimes we talk about the, the five marks of, of, of partnership in the gospel at Crossway. I'm probably going to forget at least one of them. Uh, we talk about a partner at Crossway being someone who prays for the ministry, uh, who um, comes to the meetings that the ministry puts on whenever they can, uh, who prays for the ministry, who is on at least one rota involved in the ministry, and who is seeking to disciple one other person in the ministry. Those are the five marks of partners at Crossway. But I sometimes think as I say those things to our church family, people are thinking, oh, this is legalism, this is a culture of legalism. And in our culture, which is allergic to one person imposing their view on another person, that line has real traction. But Paul is saying here that whilst we haven't been saved by God, uh, sorry, whilst we haven't been saved by good works, we have been saved for good works. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And when we get that perspective, it transforms our view of serving other people in whatever way that might be, with our prayers, with our money, with our energy, with our time. Because all of a sudden, the good works that we're looking at are not the grind that we have to go through, but the gift that God has given us. He prepared them in advance. Isn't that incredible? To think that God, in advance of you doing whatever it is by way of service to other people, God prepared that in advance for you. All of a sudden, that becomes a gift of an opportunity rather than a grind. What we don't do and what we do do. And all of that in the light of this glorious new reality that Paul has laid out for us that should define our very sense of self individually and corporately together. Who do you think you are? Paul would say you are a whole new person in the Lord Jesus Christ and that changes everything. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we ask again that you would open the eyes of our hearts to really grasp this profound, powerful, spiritual reality that you reached down into the pit and lifted us up and out of spiritual death to glorious new spiritual life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to bless you again for that incredible reality. And we ask that as we grasp it by your spirit working in our lives, so you would transform us in our attitude to ourselves and to each other. Take away any uh, boastful arrogance, any pride that might have worked its way into our way of thinking and doing. Produce instead in us a humility that loves to serve each other. Help us to view each other as we really are, by grace, your children, royalty in your family, seated at your right hand in the heavenly places. Help us to love each other and care for each other in the light of that glorious reality. 
And we ask, Lord, that all of that might be to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.